In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. Today we've got some great topics for you. It's going to be hopefully not as depressing as last week. Although oh. I think that was a new high bar for depression. So. Yeah. When we talk about updates about the Eric Chauvin trial, uh, maybe that won't be depressing, but it will be really enraging. I Yeah. There's, there's going to be some cuss words. Hmm. I should hope so. Um, I just yeah, spoiled so we got it. Some, what are we talking about? I know. I know. My intro is just totally ruined now. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> so we're going to end off today, Nathan, with <laughs> uh, with uh, discussing the Derek Chauvin trial and providing some updates on um, the current status of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery's cases. Um, we'll also be talking about Biden's infrastructure and tax plan um, and discussing voter suppression and the new wave of um, anti-voter legislation that's hitting state legislatures all over the nation. Um, And of course, as usual, if you love our show and uh, it adds value to your life and you want to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash the perspectrum. And yeah, you'll get access to some exclusive patron content um, to our resources, my notes, and some, uh, some exclusive, you know, talkbacks after the show that we're calling uh, uh, the Perspectrum After Hours. Um, so yeah, head on over to that page and and uh, support us. Yeah, yeah. But before we get into the meat of today's episode, uh, Michael, why don't you hit us off with the COVID numbers? Okay, so worldwide, so far we've had 130.1 million cases which is up from 125.2 million last week, which is nearly a 3.9% increase, um, which is another uh, week of an increase in the rate of new cases worldwide, um, which is really, really disappointing. Like 4%, nearly 4% is kind of what we were seeing throughout like uh, the back half of last year. So uh, that's pretty high. Um, So far, 2.84 million people have died from COVID, which is up from 2.75 million people last week, which is about 90,000 more deaths uh, than the previous week. So that's another big increase in deaths. For the the two weeks prior to that, we were seeing a 60,000 increase per week. Um, So that's significantly more. Um, So far, 7.8 doses have been administered for every 100 people in the world, uh, which is up from 6.2 doses last week. Um, In the U.S., 31.2 million cases uh, is our new new benchmark that we've hit this week, which is up from 30.7 million cases last week, which is a 1.6% increase or about 500,000 new cases. Um, And that's about 100,000 more new cases than there was the previous week. So so the previous week we saw 400,000 new cases. This week it's 500,000 new cases. Um, Going along with that, the test positivity rate rose, uh, which is now up to 4.8%, which is still good, still very good, um, but that's up from 4.3% over the week before. Um, 
In the U.S., we've hit 566,000 deaths, which is up from 558,000 deaths last week. So that's another week of about 1,100 new deaths per day. Um, so it's basically the same uh, daily death rate that we've seen for the prior two weeks. And as a reminder, that's about 420,000 deaths per year, um, which is like the third leading cause of death on a, on a per day basis. But a little bit of light. Um, in the U.S., 29% uh, of people have received at least one dose of the vaccine, which is up from 25% last week. And 16% of people are fully vaccinated, which is up from 14% last week. Um, again, like, I'm not sure when this huge wave of vaccines is going to come, but states are starting to open up um, uh, in the coming weeks, the like vaccines for, for everyone. So I think at the beginning of November, New York will open up to uh, everyone to be eligible to receive the vaccine. And in Virginia, I think it's April 18th. So we're getting up on that on the point when, uh, when it'll just be widely available, hopefully. Um, but I'm not sure how we're going to get to herd immunity by May, Biden. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, I don't know. But the biggest aspect that we do need to focus on is when you can get vaccinated, get vaccinated. We might not be able to get yeah, herd immunity by May, but we can try to get as close as possible. And restrictions, at least restrictions from reasonable people that actually care about preventing the spread of the disease and you know, care mm -hmm. about protecting people's lives, um, those can be lifted significantly in your own personal lives once you do get vaccinated. So just yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah, and recent studies have started to come out showing that the vaccine's even more beneficial than we thought, including like... Um, uh, certain vaccines totally prevent you from spreading the disease, which was unclear for a while, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, now, fortunately, uh, now that we have passed the COVID stimulus package, it's time for the Biden administration to move on to other policy priorities. Now, there are lots of priorities that were talked about on the campaign trail, one of the most essential ones that was frequently debated on in primaries was, of course, of course, infrastructure. Now, Donald Trump promised to get infrastructure done, but of course, he didn't. Um, but Biden is renewing a push in order to try to get a major infrastructure deal done. So he is currently proposing a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. So Michael mm. and I want to talk a little bit about what is in it, is it enough, how is it paid for? And also, Do you want to hear uh, my one-sentence summary of all that? Yeah, go ahead. Internet, electricity, water, jobs, funded by companies skipping out on taxes by being located overseas. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's not to love? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting is that there's been a lot of other uh, proposals or at least uh, ideas of how much actually needs to be spent. Uh, everything together... Uh, that Bernie Sanders was proposing in the uh, during the primary was like 16 trillion. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen some studies that say that in order to actually legitimately improve our infrastructure to the point where it's actually rebuilt and the best in the world, we need to spend as much as like you know uh, four and a half to five trillion. And what's really interesting mm -hmm. about this is I want to talk about Joe Manchin for a second. I know we're big fans in a on good this way pod. or a bad way. 
<laughs> just wait. As usual, it's always yeah. on the edge. Yeah. Just wait. So what's interesting is Joe Manchin right off the bat has come forward and said that he would actually support an infrastructure bill as big as $4 trillion. Remember, wow. Biden's proposal. As long as it's all spent on coal in West Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but remember, so Biden is suggesting $2 trillion. So, you know, when I first saw this from Joe Manchin, I was like, wait, what? Joe Manchin <laughs> is being more progressive than Joe Biden? I am so confused right now. What the fuck? <laughs> and then I kept reading and Joe Manchin said, yes, and we need to make sure that it doesn't add to the deficit, which means that there needs to be major tax hikes. I was like, wait, what? You're, you're, so, so presumably, he's talking about tax hikes on really wealthy people. So I'm like, what? Okay, so you think that we need to tax the rich to the point where we can pay for a $4 trillion uh, infrastructure deal? And I'm thinking, holy shit, am I, are we thinking about Joe Manchin? Is this really Joe Manchin? And then I kept reading, and he was like, and I will not vote for any bill unless a Republican supports it. And I'm like, okay, there's the Joe Manson I know. <laughs> so, but the issue wow, is... that is artful. That is positively <laughs> artful. Oh, my gosh. I am a solid progressive that stands up for you, but I'm, I'm too bipartisan. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, but the funny thing is, it, it kind of, like, he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it, too. Because yeah. the more tax hikes you propose, the less likely it is to get any Republican support. In fact, you know, screw it. it. Even if there were no tax hikes, this infrastructure would receive zero Republican support. As it stands, mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell has al already pledged to fight against it. So the mm -hmm. idea that, oh, well, I would be for a $4 trillion uh, uh, infrastructure plan, and I would be totally for major tax hikes on the rich— but I need Republicans to sign off on it before I can support it. Mm -hmm. That's never going to happen. So yeah. I don't know. It, it's kind of like he's trying to politically present himself as a fighter, yeah. but also while also obstructing the shit out of anything that the Biden administration can yeah. actually do. I'll also vote for health care for all, but it must include a provision to find and treat unicorns. And if it doesn't <laughs> include that, I'm not signing. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'd, the likelihood is about the same. I mean, no Republican yeah. <laughs> is going to vote for this. And I just think it's funny that the Biden administration keeps on chasing this white whale of bipartisanship. Bipartisanship is not going to happen in Washington, D.C. And the thing is, it hasn't happened since Barack Obama. Let's not forget, Barack Obama came forward and presented a health care plan, plan that was the Republican health care plan. The Affordable Care Act was a Republican health care plan. It was created by the Heritage Foundation, impl implemented in Massachusetts by then-Governor Mitt Romney. It was the Republican plan, and not a single Republican supported it. Mm -hmm. All right? Even when you give them their plan, when you present their plan in an attempt to get bipartisanship, they're going to vote against it. And that's because they don't actually yeah. have principles. Elected Republicans do not have principles. They're not going to vote for your plan, even if it is everything that they want. They're not going to do mm -hmm. it because they don't want you to have any type of political power or political gain. Democrats yeah. voted for the uh, stimulus packages that Donald Trump 
had negotiated, that Republicans had proposed. Democrats voted for that. But Republicans voted against a bill that had most of the same stuff when it was Democrats doing it. And it's because mm. it's political football to them. All right. They're not actually trying to help anybody. They're not actually trying to work with Democrats. They never will. So the Biden administration needs to stop caring about bipartisanship. All right. Yeah. I, I, stop I totally making agree. shitty bills for bipartisanship. Yeah. Committing to bipartisanship is like, okay. So imagine you were trying to get your toddler to eat dinner and you say to them, I'm going to force you to eat dinner, but I'm going to need you on board. You know, I'm only going to force you if you agree to eat dinner. So we're going to make whatever you want for dinner. Like you're just, you're just giving away your leverage when you tell someone that you won't do something unless they agree to it. Yeah. And like, yeah. so, so like the, it's not that bipartisanship is not a good thing to have, but it is, it is a, uh, a nice to have, not a must have yeah. unless you actually must have it. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, I, I totally agree that like bipartisan for bipartisanship's sake is just it's it is a, it's, it's another one of those things that that Democrats try to hold themselves to that puts them at a disadvantage that Republicans just ignore immediately as soon as they have power. Yeah. And also it's the way it's presented is usually super misleading. Like mm -hmm. they present bipartisan the, 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 like a republicans presented the fact that not a single republican voted for the stimulus package as mm -hmm. an indication that that stimulus package is a uh will lead to more disunity in the country that it's going to uh deepen the divide in the country but the thing is a majority of republican voters supported it like yeah. almost 70 percent of all americans supported it the only people that were being divisive were elected Republicans. The only people that nobody agreed with was the elected Republicans. Yeah. So, and I can almost guarantee you that as you know, I haven't seen any public opinion polls on this specific plan so far, but they're mm -hmm. going to be overwhelmingly popular. I mean, infrastructure improvement is a bipartisan issue. Like it is a desperate need. The American civil, uh, Society of Civil Engineers gave the U.S. a C minus on infrastructure and noted that four out of every 10 bridges are more than half a century old and that water mains rupture every two minutes. Yeah. Like we are in desperate need of the, like, improving access to broadband and better roads and bridges and water infrastructure, improving our energy grid. And that's the thing. All of these things are bipartisan issues one by one but you're right as soon as you package them into a democrat-led bill they're going to be against them and the funny thing is like you're seeing media fall for it like hook line and sinker because they're falling back on the fact that republicans tend to be well they they pretend to be fiscally conservative and so <laughs> as soon as they say as soon as they say you know it's going to increase taxes or and or increase the deficit um you see traditional political analysts going, oh, well, Republicans aren't going to support that because they have this good reason, which is that they're politically, you know, fiscally conservative. But actually, it's that they're not going to support it for the exact same reason they oppose every other, like, great bill the Democrats put forward, which is that it's a Democrat bill. The United States currently ranks 13 in the world in terms of infrastructure, uh, according to a World Economic Forum report. 
in uh, 2019. 13. We have the highest GDP in the world. Mm-hmm. We should not be ranked number 13. That is ridiculous. That is insane. Yeah. That is embarrassing. The U.S. economy contains two other top 10 economies. <laughs> like, I think California is the fifth largest economy in the world. God. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is absolutely ridiculous that we don't have impeccable infrastructure. And it's because of, of political problems like this. Yeah. So what's in this plan? Well, uh, so as we talked about earlier, uh, this is a proposal with a $2 trillion price tag. And over and eight years, over eight years. Yeah. Uh, it'll so take about it's eight years. It's not like a, yeah, it's yeah, not like, it's, all it's not like a, over, a, a stimulus plan every year, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, over eight years, it'll take about eight years for the money in this specific package to run out. Um, so the Biden administration is also presenting it as basically paying for itself because they proposed a corporate tax rate increase. Uh, the current corporate tax rate is 21%. They're proposing increasing it to 28%. Uh, we're going to get back to that because that's that's really important to discuss. Uh, it is important to note, though, that the amount of time that it would take for that tax increase to actually pay for this would be 15 years. Mm-hmm. Again, this is an eight-year bill. 15 is larger yeah. than eight, so, you know. <laughs> so it means it's, it's, it basically means it's not deficit neutral. It would it's require borrowing neutral. for seven of uh, the 15 years that it would take to fund. Yeah, but which it does is mean not necessarily that, a bad thing. Yeah, not necessarily a bad thing. And it does mean that barring another huge infrastructure spending or, or increasing the budget after those eight years are over, you would have that deficit decline because yeah. of the because of the taxes. So it's not Absolutely. like you're signing yourself up for, for loans in perpetuity. Yeah, exactly. That that is that is a really important point. So let's talk about what specifically is in it. So um so let's start with transportation. All right. So um, there would be uh, $174 billion in electrical vehicle uh, investments, um, and that would include trying to establish a network of 500,000 charging stations by 2030, Hmm. which is is great. Yeah. It would also give people incentives for buying electric vehicles. Exactly. We really need to be moving away from, you know, gas-powered vehicles um, and this would actually make it more practical. Um, it would also be uh, $115 billion for bridges and roads. As Michael talked about, many of our bridges are decades old at this point. Uh, if you've ever driven in West Virginia, which I have, which again, this is probably why Joe Manchin is open to a larger infrastructure deal. The roads in mm. a lot of parts of this country, especially in rural areas, are insulting. Like, they're terrible. Yeah. Um, uh, $20 billion to improve road safety, which uh, sort of goes along that. Um, $85 mm-hmm. billion dollars for existing public transit, also wonderful. $80 billion yeah. for railways. Uh, $50 billion to improve resilience for in, in on infrastructures. Um, $25 billion for airports. $17 billion for waterways and ports of entry. And $20 billion to reconnect urban neighborhoods cut off by highways. Mm, nice. So there's also a hundred billion dollars for high speed internet, uh, yes. which is 
really important because as we've seen with the pandemic access to internet is an increasing inequality issue yes um, and there's another hundred billion dollars for replacing lead pipes which poison mm. literally poison people's drinking water yeah in the most wealthy country on earth yeah yeah <laughs> um remember flint and, and even a hundred billion dollars for yeah yeah and even a hundred billion dollars for retraining uh, workers to uh, to focus on high skilled jobs. Fifty six billion dollars overall for uh, modernizing water systems. Um, a mm. hundred billion dollars for uh, trying to switch the electrical grid over to clean energy. Sixteen mm -hmm. billion dollars um, for putting hundreds of thousands of people to work in union jobs. Uh, this would this would be. Uh, plugging oil and gas wells and restoring and reclaiming old abandoned mines. Um, $10 billion for civilian climate corps. Um, so there's also a major investment to schools and homes and buildings. Um, mm -hmm. That's uh, $213 billion for affordable housing, $100 billion for school, school construction, uh, 12 billion for community colleges, 25 billion for childcare facilities, 18 billion for VA hospitals, 10 billion for federal buildings. Hmm. Man, that's that's yeah. money well spent for sure. That is like, money very well spent. Hospitals, like addressing the housing crisis, improving education which pays dividends in the future, like all really important stuff. There's yeah. also 50 billion dollars um to improve US semiconductor manufacturing, which is like the the uh like manufacturing of the future as we move towards a more digital environment um and 300 billion dollars just to revive u.s manufacturing in general um including a huge investment in clean energy and 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 um and research there's actually 180 billion dollars to upgrade the country's research infrastructure at, mm. at uh, labs and universities yeah and of that uh 50 billion would go to the national science foundation and this I think is is really big. Thirty five billion to achieve tech, tech, technological uh, breakthroughs to address the climate crisis. Remember, the last mm. guy thought that uh, like forest fires were caused by not raking leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not helped by not raking leaves, <laughs> <laughs> but leaves aren't like getting together and like rubbing themselves together until they <laughs> erupt. Yeah. Okay, now I'm, so now overall, I'm picturing like, now I'm picturing two leaves <laughs> trying to seduce each other. <laughs> hey babe. That's now that's California, you know? You're on fire. Uh, free love. Yeah. <laughs> um so what you might have picked up on is that like half of this bill goes towards traditional infrastructure. And about half of it goes towards what I would characterize as like the infrastructure of the future. Like Investing in our economy, investing in our people, investing in education, research—it like it really is a pretty comprehensive look at overhauling the American economy to be forward-looking. Which I'm—I'm—I find this bill very exciting and relatively yeah. inspiring from the Biden administration. Yeah, like like it, it looks to the future in a way that I wasn't expecting from yeah. this administration. Now that being said. Of course, it is important to address the elephant in the room, which is the fact that even the most conservative Democrat in the Senate is willing to go double this. 
Mm-hmm. Like the most conservative Democrat in the Senate is willing to go double this. So the Biden administration well, <laughs> is in theory, in theory, <laughs> yeah, in theory. Yes. Um, and in a lot of ways, this this is going to help significantly. But I mean, this isn't going to make us number one. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason we shouldn't be number one. I mean, the only reason the only thing that's holding us back is the fact that Biden is so obsessed with the idea of potentially trying to get Republicans on board that mm-hmm. he started the negotiation at a at a disadvantage and then he's not going to get any Republican support and then he's just going to keep it as is which is mm-hmm. exactly what Obama did with the Affordable Care Act which was a really bad strategy. So yes, the Affordable Care Act had a lot of really necessary reforms and we're better off for it. This has a lot of very necessary reforms, and we're better off for it. But it, in a lot of ways, it is a wasted chance at getting much more done. And, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that if this does get passed, it won't warrant some credit. But I don't think it'll warrant being super impressed with the Biden administration, I would say. But Nathan, isn't that like a little, I don't know like simplistic like wouldn't they need 60 votes in the senate to get a bill like this passed nope uh they could do it through budget reconciliation it it does it Mm. does absolutely affect revenue because i mean you're you know you're increasing yeah yeah i mean it's it you know there's the tax there's also the increase in spending it you can very easily do Mm -hmm. it through reconciliation um the issue is uh, the, 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 the concern is Manchin has already said that if there are no Republicans that sign on for future bills that are passed through reconciliation, he's not willing to vote for it, which means that, gotcha. you know, so maybe really you don't is. need, yeah, maybe you don't need 60 votes, but if Manchin does hold to that, which I'm hoping he doesn't, because I mean, again, he's from West Virginia, their infrastructure is like one of the worst in the country. Um, hopefully, yeah. hopefully he won't hold to that. Um, and I yeah. think that it's possible that if his constituency puts enough pressure on him that he might break. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, for example, he did oppose $2,000 checks for a while and then he was flooded with phone calls from his constituency and he was like, oh, did I, did I say no $2,000 checks? I meant, I meant <laughs> definitely $2,000 checks. <laughs> <laughs> I always get those two mixed up. <laughs> Gotcha. Okay, well, that's that's really interesting. It was a typographical error. Because it's just, it literally is just the need for bipartisan support. So if you're listening in West Virginia, tell your friends, call your representative, call Joe Manchin, make him pass this bill because it's on him. Yeah. Um, Um, One thing we definitely should talk about is the how you pay for this, which is the corporate tax increase. The main proposal is the fact that the Biden administration is proposing raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Now, you might hear that and Mm. think, great, wonderful. Why not? And the issue is, I think it's important to remind everybody, and actually, this is something that I warned people about during the primary. I remember specifically warning people during the primary, beware when Democrats say things like, oh, let's raise the corporate tax rate to like 28% or, or something like mm-hmm. that, that that's a weasel thing to say. The reason for that is because prior to the Trump tax cuts, which all of these Republic, all of these Democrats claim to be against the corporate tax rate was 35%. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Biden is basically saying, yeah, it was okay that it was reduced. It was just reduced too much. So the yeah. fact that he's not raising it back to 35% or, you know, I think it was, should be higher than that. Yeah. Um, is weaselly. Is imagine, very weaselly. Imagine how fast you could pay for this bill if it went back to 35%. You exactly. Wouldn't even, it, could, it could literally be budget neutral. Like, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Um, the idea is also to try to close some loopholes, disincentivizing people from the use of mm-hmm. offshore bank accounts. And, and there, actually, there actually has been talks about uh, a major, another major tax proposal proposed sometime in April. And that mm. would probably include some of the other uh, aspects of, of Biden's tax plan that he had talked about during the campaign, namely um, taxing capital gains the same as income tax, uh, removing the cap on Social Security tax, things like that. Um, but for now, this is what's on the table. And Republicans hate this. Mm-hmm. They, they hate that fact. And in fact, powerful business groups led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are criticizing the raise in corporate tax rates, basically saying that it undermines their own support for an infrastructure deal, which, by the way, they've said that we've needed for a long time. Mm-hmm. But of course, like the funny thing is, usually it's uh, the Republicans that are asking the question, how are you going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. You know? And now that we're proposing, yeah, we're going to pay for it by taxing corporations, they're like, Fuck no. You kidding me? Well, <laughs> well, that's the gotcha question behind how you're going to pay for it. It's either increased taxes or increased but deficit, and they're against both. <laughs> but but I, they've been for infrastructure deals. And honestly, and, yeah. they benefit and they've been for from raising the deficit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but they benefit from infrastructure deals. They need good cars for people to come to their businesses. All right. Mm-hmm. They benefit significantly from this. And yeah. let's, let's just break apart the argument that they're making. So the primary argument that they're trying to make is that it's going to destroy possible economic gains that come from this infrastructure deal. Like the, raising the taxes ever so slightly on them is going to destroy economic gains. Uh, Republican Representative Kevin Brady uh, actually made the argument that, quote, as we're trying to rebuild the economy from the biggest hit we've had in 90 years, why would you impose a massive tax hike on the very American businesses that you want to rehire workers? And what's funny is if you understand anything about tax policy, you, 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 hear, you, you would hear that and realize, well, you just answered your own questions. Like his question is, why would you propose a massive tax hike on American businesses? And he answers that when he says, if you want to rehire workers. So the reason why that right there is like, you know, is a self-defeating argument is because businesses in terms of corporate tax rate, they're taxed on profit generated, not on revenue, but profit, which means that if you are spending money on hiring new workers, that money that you're spending, which you know you are getting a benefit from, because ideally, if you're hiring new workers, you're benefiting from that in some way. That money is not going to be taxed, so it actually gives you more incentive to invest in your business by potentially, uh, you know, hiring new workers, getting new locations, than it would with a lower tax rate. That is why the whole argument during the uh, uh, 
during the debate about the Republican tax bill about how, oh, this is going to really incentivize people to, to hire new workers, to, to pay their workers more. It just wasn't true. It incentivized them to pocket more money because the yeah. money that they're generating from profit is not being taxed as much. So why would they invest it? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to walk through a quick example to explain a little bit of the simple math, because honestly, it's a pretty, it's just algebra and people like assume that no one's going to do the math. So let's think about it. So say you're a corporation and you make uh, $10 in revenue and say you spend, you've got one cost and it's labor and you spend $3 on labor. So your income is $7. So that's what you're taxed on. So say you're taxed at 24%. So your net income after taxes would be $5.32, which means you would have paid $1.68 in taxes. Now, let's say you, uh, let's say we hire one more person. So now instead of paying $3 in labor, you pay $4 in labor, but we also increase your tax rate by 2%. So now you, instead of paying 24% in taxes, you're paying 26%. So now you've got $10 in revenue, you spend $4 on labor, so your income is $6. Now, presumably you'll get a benefit from that labor, but to simplify the example, we're keeping revenue constant. So your tax rate's 26%, which means your net income after taxes is $4.44 compared to your net income before taxes of $5.32. So note, your net income has gone down, both as a result of paying for more labor and also um, the increase in taxes. But the amount you pay in taxes is actually $1.56, which is down from the amount you paid before, which is $1.68. So actually in this example, hiring another person, so increasing your cost of labor, offset the increase in uh, the amount you would pay in taxes. And so the net income reduction is, is primarily due to the cost of the labor, which will presumably pay a benefit. So, so really there's no reason why you wouldn't, you're not going to like pay more in taxes, the incentive to invest in your business and the amount of tax you pay are independent of each other. Yeah. Yeah. So basically with like a, two-minute math problem, Michael just completely um, debunked decades of trickle-down economics being shoved <laughs> down our throat. <laughs> like, it's so... It really is easy to deconstruct why the Republican argument just makes no sense whatsoever. And, you know, ultimately... I would say that the tax increase is, it's not enough, but it's definitely a start, which I would say is kind of a theme for the entire infrastructure plan. Not enough, definitely a start. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, we do Tips for Good every week, Michael, because... Your kisses lift me higher, like the sweet song of the choir, mm. and you light my morning sky, burning love. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm just a hunk of hunk of burning love. 
Tell me. Tell me. And also because it makes the world a better place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that. There's that. Yeah, sure is. <laughs> so, Nathan, what is our tip for good today? Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is don't ask weaselly rhetorical questions with the intention mm. of not actually having those questions answered. So here's what mm. I mean by that. So there does seem to be a very common practice of commentators asking rhetorical questions, pretending that they're not rhetorical questions, and then not even trying to seek the answers to those rhetorical questions. Yeah. So, for example, <clears throat> Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got a little, uh, you got a little cough there in your throat, man. Might yeah, I got a little Carlson vaccine. in my throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that dude, that stays there. Yeah. <laughs> that that I, that I, I now away. refer to gunk as Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, boogers is Tucker. Uh, anyway. <laughs> You know, because they tuck in your nose. They're tuckers. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they get all tuck. <laughs> Anyways, um, so one of, the, one of the biggest examples that inspired this is when Tucker Carlson went on the air and was like, I'm just asking questions. How effective are these vaccines? How safe are these vaccines? Dude, have you ever heard of Google? Yeah. Like, and isn't can... it your job to Google? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> These are questions that are very easy to answer. So there's nothing wrong with asking questions when you are legitimately trying to figure out the answer. But if you're asking questions with the intent of trying to instill doubt, especially when there are actual answers to those questions that if you actually took two seconds to Google, you could find that is being a weasel. Mm -hmm. So not only should you not do it yourself, you should recognize when other people are doing it and recognize yeah. that that is a that is a red flag. Yeah. So if a person is asking a question, it should be with the intention of trying to understand the answer. If a person is asking a rhetorical question, it should not be presented as if it is not a rhetorical question, as if it is as if it is a legitimate question. And that's tips for good. Okay, so for our second segment, we wanted to come back to a topic that we've visited a couple times because it is absolutely critical, and it's part of the Republican strategy to curtail it, and that is voting. As I'm sure you know, prior to the 2020 election, like the Republicans did a lot of damage in trying to limit the confident, public confidence in the election and use that wedge in order to uh, drive voter suppression tactics. And when I say voter suppression, like we mean that tactics that attempt to prevent or, or overburden or provide obstacles to voters, um, to legitimate voters. And they do this under the guise of trying to improve the integrity and security of our election. Two major um, pieces, two major laws have recently uh, kind of hit the spotlight and drawn attention to this issue. Um, one is in Georgia. So last week, Georgia passed a law signed by Republican Governor Brian Kemp that imposes significant obstacles to voting 
uh, in the state. Now, you might remember that Georgia uh, was take like both um, Senate seats were taken by the Democrats after a runoff election, which means that Georgia, having just turned purple for the first time, um, is now under attack uh, from, you know, from from uh, like enabling people to vote. So like this is not only something that is a principle that people should be able to vote in a democracy, duh, but it's also something that has significant practical implications. I just I just imagine the pitch meeting to uh, <laughs> to Georgia Republicans. Like I imagine one person coming in and just being like, hey, y'all, like a lot of black people voted um, and we lost because of that. Yeah. And then one person in the room says, all right, so I got an idea. Let's try to, you know, make laws that actually appeal to the African-American community, like make laws that address institutional racism and and then that person was immediately smacked in the face and someone said, nope, nope, black people aren't voting for us because we oppress them. Here's what we need to do. Make sure they can't vote anymore. <laughs> and then a third guy chimed in and was like, we're not already doing that? It's like, <laughs> apparently not enough. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it's like the, yeah. This is a classic thing. It's like, it's like Republicans can't just have better policies that appeal to people. They can't just try to be decent human beings that actually take steps to make people want to vote for them. If yeah. they don't win, the, the strategy is just, let's just make it so less people can vote. If, you, if that is your strategy, you are not the good guy, mm -hmm. okay? You are not the good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is that, like, that really is their strategy. So this year... Um, 33 states have either introduced, pre-filed, or uh, carried over 165 bills that restrict uh, voting, um, which is up from 35 bills last year, which is just a ridiculous increase in the number of, of bills introduced at the state level, specifically trying to limit voting. And the list of states that is doing this includes Georgia, Texas, um, and, and multiple other states where Democrats made significant recent gains. Like, it's just patently obvious that this is a significant part of their strategy. And it's even more obvious when you look at one of these bills, like the Georgia bill. So what does this bill do? First, it removes the Secretary of State as the chair of the elections board, and instead lets the state legislature appoint a, quote, nonpartisan chair of the board instead. Which you might think, hey, isn't that good? But a couple things. First of all, why would they target the Secretary of State? Well, maybe it's because Brad Raffensperger pissed Trump off, and now they want to replace him and make sure that uh, you know they can't do that again. And the thing is, why would we expect a purely partisan group like a state legislature to appoint a nonpartisan chair? The state legislature in Georgia has been controlled by Republicans since 2005. Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not bi like, bipartisan. Um, and so, so one good thing the law does, it requires that each county have at least one Dropbox for absentee ballots, which is great because Dropboxes were increasingly important all over because more people were voting absentee. But it, act but it also limits 
the number of drop boxes that each county can have and the operating hours of the drop boxes. So, uh, so each county cannot have more than one drop box per early voting location or per 100,000 active registered voters, which means a county like Fulton County, uh, which uh, went for Biden and is a very large county, which had 38 drop boxes for the November election, would in the future have eight. And those drop boxes wouldn't be allowed to be accessed except for during early voting hours. So like it makes it makes early voting significantly less convenient. And we know that that disenfranchises people that have less flexible schedules. It also it also uh, shrinks the amount of time uh, uh, leading up to a runoff election and, and, and shortens the runoff campaign length, which like, oh, no surprise. Democrats won a runoff, which means now runoffs are bad, <laughs> which is ridiculous and significantly shortens um, the amount of time that people are able to vote absentee. So it allows absentee ballots to be sent out only 29 days before the election, which is down from the previous 49 days. Um, and it requires that election officials have received your ballot no later than 11 days before the election, which is up from four days before the election um, previously. So let's think about that. You can only get your ballot 29 days before an election and you must have it returned 11 days before an election. So if you count like two days for in the mail, you've got like two weeks to fill your bad ballot out. That should be probably fine. Except for the fact that, you know, during the election uh, year in 2020, ballots were delayed by weeks. So just this timing thing could really significantly disenfranchise people. Yeah. So like you can see how obviously these tactics are are targeted at um, people who have less flexible schedules, who are more likely to vote absentee. And so they're t the totality heavily, of the impact. heavily populated areas, which, yes, coincidentally, tend to vote areas. Democratic. Yeah. All of these things are specifically focused at Democratic voters and specifically focused at minority voters. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, these are happening in states all over the nation. Yeah. And one of the things I think is important to discuss is Democratic strategy regarding this. So yeah. the tactic that Republicans always use when it comes to voter laws is they always bring it back to the idea of voter ID laws. All right. So when the conversation is solely about voter ID laws, Democrats are going to lose. Now, here's the important thing about voter ID laws. They are bullshit. Like the idea that, you know, the idea of voter ID or limiting voter ID is specifically designed to target minorities. That is, that's just true. And the thing is, the argument behind voter ID. So if we are approaching this from the theory that legislation should only be passed in response to solving a problem. And we take an issue like voter ID laws. The problem that they claim to be solving is voter fraud. And as it stands, there is zero evidence of widespread voter fraud. The few cases in which they found have been, you know, relatively isolated incidents. And it's like in the single or double digits, like of billions of ballots cast. It is not a widespread problem. That is just a fact. 
So if the problem that is proposed does not actually exist, then a solution should not be legislation. Now, that being said, that is, that is important to note. However, if you just talk to the average Joe and be like, hey, uh, look at all these Republicans. They're trying to destroy your right to vote. And average Joe is like, oh, damn, how are they doing that? And then you say, by requiring you to have a driver's license in order to vote, the average Joe is just going to be like, oh, huh. I mean, I have a driver's license. Like, mm -hmm. okay. That's not a problem for me. <laughs> it's not a problem for me. Um, so what I'm saying is not that Democrats should not continue to fight policy-wise against voter ID laws, but that should not be the primary focus. The primary focus needs to be on addressing these ridiculous restrictions. There's absolutely no argument, no good argument against same-day registration. Hell, automatic registration. There is no good argument against making sure that um, if a person, you know, if a person mails in a ballot and it's postmarked before the election day, that it should be counted. There is no, uh, there is absolutely no good argument for limiting the number of days that a person can start the process of mailing in a ballot to yeah. 28 days. There's yeah. no good argument among a lot of these ridiculous laws. So the focus needs to be on that. And the thing is, Brian Kemp, Brian Kemp actually understands the exact argument that I am making because that's what he is trying to focus the conversation on. So Joe Biden mm -hmm. referred to this law as basically, he said, this is Jim Crow in the 21st century. So Brian Kemp responded by saying, this bill expands voting access, streamlines vote counting procedures, and enshrines uh, election integrity. There is nothing Jim Crow about protect about requiring a photo or a state issued ID to vote by absentee ballot. Yep. That was the focus. There's nothing Jim Crow about, mm. you know, requiring voter ID to vote for an absentee ballot. That was the focus of the argument. And he knows that on its face, that is the most reasonable sounding argument that they have. But that is not the only thing that they are doing. And Democrats mm -hmm. need to get better about focusing the conversation on, you know, the, the really blatant ways in which our system, our election system is broken. All right. There should be automatic voter registration. Election Day should be a national holiday. These are such simple and easy to argue measures. Spend time arguing about them and don't let Republicans dominate the conversation by just focusing on the ID portion. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, this is one of the rare segments we have where there is actually something good at the end. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not perfect because the bill is not perfect and because it still faces a pretty big uphill battle. But in the Senate and the House, uh, it's H.R. Uh, 1 and S. 1, there is a bill called the For the People Act. So the For the People Act is based on a very basic idea that the best way to defend democracy is to strengthen it. And it's, it would be the most significant voting rights and democracy reform in more than half a century. So according to the Brennan Center, the act is pretty comprehensive and it addresses stuff that I really wasn't expecting. So it incorporates key measures um, like 
automatic voter registration and same day and online voter registration. Um, it prevents certain kinds of voter roll pur purges. Um, it restores the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, which has been, which was like gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013. Um, so it restores those. It institutes national early voting. It strengthens vote by mail um, protections and, and processes. It restores voting rights to people with prior convictions, which is huge. Um, it also it also tries to um, do some reforms on campaign finance by instituting a small dollar matching um, program for uh, for election funding. So for small dollar donors, the, uh, they'll be matched by public funds in order to enable people um, that are running for office to actually, you know, get uh, funding without having to go to huge donors. Um, it's also... Uh, includes other campaign finance reforms that improve transparency and accountability, as well as um, uh, provides funding for election security, specifically around um, removing paperless voting systems, which are, are actually pretty problematic. Um, and it establish, and establishes independent uh, redistricting commissions in states uh, for drawing congressional districts in order to end uh, partisan gerrymandering in federal elections, which is huge. Like I'm, I'm like blown away that this one bill. I'm, I'm both blown away and unsurprised. Like these are such obvious things to do, but it's like someone's actually doing them. This is so nice. <laughs> yeah, it is important to note though that um, filibuster. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's. You can't pass this one under reconciliation. You, yeah, I, I don't see how you could pass this one for reconciliation. So the the filibuster either needs to be, you know, we need to either have a return to the talking filibuster or we need um, the filibuster to just be done away with if we want yeah. this to pass. And, so, and if you're curious about what the filibuster is and why it needs to be removed, we did an episode on that a few weeks ago. Yeah, you should definitely, you should definitely check it out. Yeah. Yeah, it that is definitely disappointing, which is crazy because it literally puts money into election security in addition to all these other awesome things that and all they do is improve people's access to voting. But it's so clear that Republicans are bad faith actors when it comes to election security and voting. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. Ass hat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asset this week? Michael, we have a heavyweight this week. This is Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor, Jewish Space Lasers Green. <laughs> I, I'm so proud of her that she's finally made it onto our show. I mean, I've yeah, just me been too. seeing yeah. so many crazy things from the QAnon Congresswoman. And yep. I just, I feel, I feel like we've let her down and that we haven't made her our asshat yet. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think partly we were desensitized to QAnon <laughs> because, like, you know, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. And I think I, I was definitely stunned that there was a representative who was, like, promoting QAnon shit. But, man, <laughs> she is, deserves being on this show. Yes, Pretty, she I does. think more than almost anyone. So <laughs> uh, what did uh, what did Mrs. Jewish Space Lasers do? <laughs> Well, our uh, Jewish space lasers lazy. Um, 
was very outraged about uh, vaccination, specifically mm. the notion of vaccine passports, not government mandated, but ones mandated by corporations for uh, potential employers. She said, quote, this is something like Biden's mark of the beast, because that is really disturbing and not good. So she's referring to vaccine passports. Yeah. So she's basically saying that when, you know, in, in the book of Revelations, when the apocalypse uh, apocalypse comes, there's supposed to be like a, a mark of the beast to indicate people that are evil. Apparently, um, that's a form that says you're vaccinated. <laughs> but it's Biden's. He's, it's he's Biden's. ushering in the uh, it's Biden's. The vaxpocalypse. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. She, she said big, powerful corporations will enforce this. And she said, quote, it's still fascism or communism. Call it whatever you want, but it's coming from private companies. I have a term for that. I call it corporate communism. Bam. Boom. Amazing. She's like, I need something as snappy as socialism for the rich. <laughs> Let's go with corporate. Co yeah. I think it's so funny. Yeah. And she was like, and she was trying to say that, like, she, she tried to make this argument that, like, oh, like, corporations benefit from the free market, but now they're going to turn around and, and institute free market type policies. Well, no way. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. So Nathan, she's so what dumb. Do you, what do you think corporate communism is? <laughs> I, I mean, it's like vegan steak. I mean, <laughs> like, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, I, I mean, it's, it's funny how bald faced it is. Cause it is, it's literally just it's so stupid. It's just the bad like, thing. But it's not the bad thing from the bad thing that you expect. It's bad yeah. thing from the good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, okay, so people don't like communism and they don't like corporations. So if I just jam those two together, it's like doubly bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's God. Awesome. She's so stupid. Like and, she's, and just to be fair, like that's, it's a, sad. a corporation requiring patrons to have a vaccine is perfectly reasonable. And also, like, just them trying to protect their patrons. Like, it's like, it's argu arguably, it's like social good driven by these corporations. Like, I don't understand yeah. what the argument yeah. is here. And except also, even if apocalypse. It also, honest, even, honestly, even if it was the government doing it, you can still make the libertarian argument of because yeah. uh, being vaccinated protects other people and therefore making the conscious decision to not be vaccinated is going to put other people at risk, then it fits the threshold of when yeah. the government should be involved. So the idea, yeah. so this could very easily be argued from a libertarian perspective, but... Mm -hmm. She's saying that it's it's fascism or communism, which she doesn't know the difference between the two of those, which is not surprising whatsoever. Yeah. Again, it's just two <laughs> bad things. It's just two bad yeah. things. Um, yeah. God, you, you, she does know that in communism, corporations just don't exist. Yeah. Corporations are not a thing. <laughs> you don't have corporations in communism. Also, like, what does she think <laughs> communism means? Like, literally, what does she think it means? Commune. Anything that's bad. Like, it's just unrelated to corporations or vaccines or any of this garbage. Anyway, congratulations to Marjorie Taylor, Jewish Space Lasers, uh, Green. 
for being our Ass Hat of the Week. So, for our last segment, we wanted to provide an update um, given the recent uh, beginning of the Derek Chauvin trial. We wanted to provide an update on that as well as the cases of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. Um, we'll yeah. spend most of the time focusing on on the Chauvin trial, but just do a brief update on on Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud first. Yeah. So uh, I want to f- first talk about uh, Ahmaud Arbery. So uh, Ahmaud Arbery, he was uh, killed by two white men in Georgia, and basically they said that he looked like somebody that had robbed a house. Um. So it's been close to a year since that happened. And let's look at where we are. So as it stands, uh, the people that murdered him are in jail waiting trial. So there isn't a lot of, um, like, there aren't a lot of uh, updates in that regard. However, there is Mm. one very interesting update. And that's the fact that Georgia has recently overhauled its citizens' arrest laws in response to this. And again, this is Georgia we're talking about. Yeah, Georgia, the, the the people that we were just talking about in the last segment, they were trying to make it so black people can't vote anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So what they're trying to do is um, uh, repeal a law that was an enacted that was enacted in 1863, and the specific purpose of this law was to allow white citizens to capture slaves fleeing north, and it's been used over the last several centuries to justify hundreds of lynchings in which basically the claim was, Oh, well this person committed a crime and they were just resisting arrest. And this exact law has been cited by the defense. Like the, the mm-hmm. pursuers were saying that he, that they suspected Ahmad Arbery of, uh, of a robbery. And this specific law was used to, um, was, was cited by the prosecutor in the case last year, who initially declined to arrest the assailants. It was literally put in to allow white people to arrest slaves. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) and apparently in this, and apparently kill them. Like, like that's the, like no matter what the level of evidence, no matter what the, uh, justification. It's like, ah, I had an inkling. I had a feeling in my gut. I'd have thought yeah. in my head that he yeah. was probably committing a crime because he looks like a crime guy. And so I'm going to kill him now. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot more that needs to be done in terms of criminal justice in Georgia, but it is nice to see some progress being made on that. Um, yeah. and at least some attempt to, you know, to abolish a law established during slavery, you know, like, 200 years after slavery is over. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, yeah. that's, that's the major way to, update. Way to, way to barely meet the minimum bar, Georgia. Yeah. So that's the major yeah. update on the, um, on the Ahmaud Arbery case uh, for Brianna Taylor. Um, there has been no prosecution uh, currently. Uh, however, there is a lawsuit that has been carried out by her boyfriend. Um, mm-hmm. And there also has been... Uh, there is a has been a bill that has passed the Kentucky House, which would limit no knock warrants mm-hmm. and would also require you to have uh, basically a paramedic with you f- 
um, before you are allowed to do a no-knock warrant. So the justification for this was that um, uh, Brianna Taylor was dying for 20 minutes after she had gotten shot, and the police officers failed to provide any medical attention. So the idea is um, have paramedics there in case something does happen so they can be there in order to try to save somebody. Mm. But again, remember... This limits no-knock warrants. It does not completely get rid of them. And yeah. there, there was a law that was proposed earlier that would, would have completely gotten rid of them. Um, and the guy that proposed the law was basically just like, um, this is a weaker version of what people are crying out for. This is a Band-Aid. Hopefully it'll keep people safe, but um, this is not nearly enough. And this can probably sum up one of the themes in our first segment, which is, you know, it's a step, but it's not enough. Um, yeah. It is nice to see some something being made, but we can't just allow it to be theater. And we also can't allow it to be like, all right, well, we passed this law. We can stop talking about our failures regarding Breonna Taylor. We, we can't allow yeah. that. This has to be this has to be addressed. And honestly, it has to be addressed nationwide. It does. Um, so let's move on and talk about the trial of Derek Chauvin. Um, so as many of you probably remember, Derek Chauvin is the police officer that murdered George Floyd um, by basically putting his knee on George Floyd's head, uh, on, on, his, on the back of his neck, um, as he laid there dying, begging for breath, calling for his mother for nine minutes. Nine minutes as you know, people in the crowd were begging for him to stop doing it to we're, we're saying you're killing him. We're filming it. So he's on trial for it. So he's got three charges against him. Um, none of them are in charges that include the requirement of, um, of intentional killing. So none of them are for like first degree murder. They don't. So no one has to prove in this case that he intentionally killed, uh, George Floyd, which seems pretty clear. Uh, so he's charged with second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. This is a pretty common practice to kind of stack charges so that if you fail to uh, meet all of the requirements for one, you could fall back on, on the next most serious. So for second degree murder, um, the prosecution will have to uh, convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt um, that Chauvin caused George Floyd's death, George Floyd's death while assaulting him. And so this is why, as Nathan's probably going to talk through, the defense is focusing a lot on the cause of death in this case. Because um, if they can prove that it, or if they can, if they can cast doubt on whether it definitely was Chauvin, then second degree murder, which is the most severe, is off the table. Third degree requires that they prove beyond a reasonable doubt um, that uh, his death was caused by um, perpetrating an act imminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard to human life. Um, so there's a bit of ambiguity about the depraved mind part, but basically this is like um, when you when you take an action that is inherently dangerous with like culpable level of negligence. Um, historically, for context, this is often used to charge uh, drug dealers with murder or with uh, you know murder. Um, even though they were selling something that wasn't intended to kill the person, but 
was inherently dangerous. Um, both of those sentences come with uh, a 10 year sentence, both of those charges. And then the third one uh, that he's charged with is second degree manslaughter. Um, so in order to convict him on, on this ground, the prosecution will have to prove that he was culpably negligent and took unreasonable risk with Floyd's life when he restrained him. Um, and that that put Floyd at risk of death or great harm. And the end uh, the uh, sentence for this is three to five years. Um, to me, it seems patently obvious that second degree murder applies here. Um, yeah. but obviously the prosecution or the defense is, is not going to take that line down. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of their defense has focused on basically, um, the crowd. So one of the major pillars of the defense is, Oh, well there were all these people in the crowd and they were angry and that was distracting. And you know, it caused me to lose focus. And that is what ultimately caused him to die. It was because the crowd was distracting me. Hmm. How fucking terrible does your case have to be for that to be the main pillar of your argument? <laughs> I mean, how fucking te- like, oh, well, there were people that were really pissed off at me because I had my knee on a black man's neck. Yeah. So it made me forget that I had my knee on a black man's neck mm-hmm. and that killed him. Yeah. Like, yeah, and Are I you mean, kidding me? Like, there, there have been lines of questioning in which they've been saying, like, they've been asking people in the crowd, were you angry at the time? They're like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was watching I, a person be murdered. Yeah. Like, and this just, this just shows how low the bar is for, you know, oftentimes in, in the public eye for, for police officers. It's like, not only did George Floyd need to be perfect, the perfect victim, but the crowd had to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't even allowed to be angry about the fact that a man was being murdered in front of them. The yeah. fact that they were angry, the fact that they were shouting like at the guy that he's fucking killing a man, the fact yep. that they were doing that, that suddenly justifies the fact that he killed him. Mm-hmm. Complete nonsense, complete bullshit. Well, that argument is pretty clearly trying to go after the manslaughter charge. It's basically trying to say, well, he wasn't culpably negligent. He was a normal level of negligence given the level of distraction by the crowd, which is like a terrible argument, as you said. I think that's pretty clearly awful, but you can see what the strategy is. Yeah. And they were also saying, oh, we were afraid that the crowd might... Uh, do something because, and I, and I love this. They actually used the quote, the, the, they actually said, because it was a high crime area. Hmm. Oh I God. wonder what that could be code for. <laughs> Basically saying these guys had a good reason to be nervous. <laughs> they there should were be worse. Black people. There were black people there. It's like, you know, it, it, it's like, you were afraid of the crowd. You were the asshole with a gun who was murdering somebody. Like, yeah. God, it's, it is absolutely an insane defense. Um, yeah. Then another aspect of it is the fact that um, there were drugs in George Floyd's system, apparently, mm-hmm. which they're claiming is what caused the death, which, yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly possible that 
it didn't help. Yeah. But what caused the death was the fact that the guy's knee was on a person's neck for nine minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, so unless somehow an autopsy can prove that the, at the exact moment, unrelated to the fact that there was a knee on George Floyd's neck, um, he suddenly, like, uh, an overdose killed him, then that's just a bullshit mm-hmm. argument. It's a complete bullshit argument. Yeah. And the thing that I'm afraid of is that it's going to fucking work. Dude, if this it asshole totally isn't work. sent to prison, I mean, fucking like think about um, Zimmerman. Yeah, like the guy that got away with you know shooting a a black kid with Skittles. Mm-hmm. Like it is very possible that this guy is going to get off, and oh my god, if he gets off the, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah. Um, and it is totally possible. Like, like there's a reason the defense is making these arguments. All they have to do, all they have to do to get murder two off the table is convince the jury that it might have been something else. Yeah. All they have to do to get, uh, you know, manslaughter off the table is to convince the jury that he didn't meet the threshold for culpable negligence. You know, which is total bullshit. Like just it's yeah, a a look, a, a like a look at the evidence, a look at the defense. It is clear what happened. Derek Chauvin, yeah. I mean, murdered a man in broad daylight while he was being filmed, while people were telling him that you're, you're, you're killing a man. Yeah. Like it is clear as day. Yeah. And that's the thing. People were telling him. He wasn't just distracted. Like he wasn't distracted. He he was there. He was aware. People were telling him he was killing him. George Floyd was telling him that he was killing him. And when people offered to help, like Genevieve Henson, who's a firefighter and emergency medical technician who was off duty at the time and was one of the witnesses that's that's come forward, um, who claimed who like went and offered to look at at uh, George Floyd, recognizing that. He was passed out and needed medical attention. Um, she was immediately more ordered by the officers uh, to not get involved, saying that if she really was a Minneapolis firefighter, as she claimed, she knew not to get involved. I mean, refusing medical attention sounds a lot like culpable negligence to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is, if it weren't for this jackass, George Floyd would still be alive today. And he deserves prison for this. And, you know, th- this, this actually, this actually, uh, Michael and I uh, were talking about uh, the other day. Um, this is actually where I still kind of fall on the side of, to an extent, um, the point of prison should be retribution. Because mm-hmm. there has to be. You can't just get away with this shit. And... The fact that he might is concerning. So we will, we will see what happens, and hopefully, against all odds, justice is actually going to be served. So now to close out our show, we will end as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? I got a needle in my arm. 
Nice. Yes. For a second, I was like, oh my God, that sounds horrible. And I was like, oh wait. <laughs> yeah, I, I got, got I got my first dose of the COVID vaccine. And I got to say, that night, it felt like somebody had shot my arm with a BB gun. <laughs> um, it really hurt. But it, you know, it's, it's so important um, for, for people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, even the first dose does provide a layer of protection. And then once you get the second dose, it's, you know, over 90% effective, uh, according to, you know, uh, according to, to studies. And, um, and I'm really excited about potentially getting my second dose. So, uh, you know, maybe I, I know that you've already gotten your first dose. So hopefully we can actually hang out in person yeah. sometime, you know, after, after we both, Dude, we both have imagine? that second dose. That oh would be God. so nice. We're going to have to do a celebratory episode. We should be so like, be hey, awesome. hey, we're in person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about you, Michael? What's your highlight? My highlight is that this weekend, Bree and I are getting our motorcycle licenses. And hopefully <laughs> over the next week, nice. we'll get motorcycles. Nice. We, we, have, we bought jackets and helmets and gloves, and we look so fucking cool. Nice. It's, it's off the hook, dude. So nice. yeah, that's, you know, highlight. you know, not to use a skull cap, right? Yes. I have a full okay. face. Like good. Yeah. Good. That, <laughs> I, and my awesome. brain is how is my money maker. So <laughs> I need true. that. True. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your so face anyway. is pretty nice too. Well, yeah, I just don't make money with it. I give that out for free. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.